Babbage is famous for two things. He invented computers and he failed to build them. Although that sounds like an inventor's version of, I'm invisible, but only if you're not looking. It's true. Charles Babbage's analytical engine, first conceived in 1833, decades before the light bulb, is considered the earliest programmable general-purpose computer ever designed. It was intended to run on steam power, had thousands of mechanical gears and levers, and was roughly the size of a small bus. Had the analytical engine been built, its impact on human history could have been extraordinary. Would major technological feats of the 20th century come generations earlier? The automobile, space travel, the internet, the atomic bomb? But it wasn't built. In fact, it was the last in a series of abandoned projects, half-realized ideas, and blown budgets that ultimately characterized the end of Babbage's career. Could it have been built? It was an easy thing to be skeptical about, but what if he was right? Hello, everyone. I'm Scott Herms. Welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about what the experiments of the past can teach us about today's most pressing problems. The show is made possible by my employer, Ken Encarta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. As a quick, shameless plug, we're hiring for hundreds of positions right now in Chicago, London, New York, Buenos Aires, Colombia, and Denver, plus tons of remote opportunities. And by remote, we mean physically and not emotionally. So if you're an engineer, developer, designer, strategist, or researcher looking for your next step, you can learn more and see open roles at kinandcarta.com forward slash careers. Today's episode is 100 Year Leaps. In the second half of the episode, we're going to entrust Dr. Shohini Ghosh with our lives and our sanity as we dive into the mind-bending, century-defining, existential crisis-inducing potential of quantum computing. We'll talk with her about the billions of dollars being invested in building them, how quantum computers might one day be used, and why her job description now includes teleportation as a primary field of interest. Wait, what? Max, is that right? Teleportation. Oh, really? Well, our producer says it's true. Okay, cool. But first, was the analytical engine an early missed opportunity for mankind to take a similar leap forward? Was it a great lost invention of human history too far ahead of its time? Did people simply not understand the power it held? Did Babbage actually understand it? Or was this a man with just improbable, impractical dreams? Was he deluded? You know, was he deluded about these machines? That's Dr. Doran Swade. Dr. Swade is a museum curator, author, historian, and a leading expert in all things Charles Babbage. He was kind enough to talk with us from his home in London. It seems Charles Babbage, like many inventors before and after him, was both a genius and, let's say, difficult. Babbage enrolled at Trinity College in 1810, eager to put his big brain to use, only to find his own mathematical skill was advanced far beyond the faculty. Off to Cambridge! At Cambridge, he studied mathematics and graduated at the top of his class, smiley face emoticon. Only his degree was given without honors after being accused of including blasphemous statements in his dissertation, frowny face emoticon. 
Hold on. Oh, I'm being told I should have not read those out loud. He was charismatic and irritable, visionary and volatile, sort of like a Kanye West of the early 19th century mathematics. He aimed to advance human knowledge and also published long public diatribes about his intellectual pursuits being destroyed by the commoners of London and their love of loud, terrible things like music and children playing. An early biography of Babbage coined him the irascible genius. Because science wasn't yet an established profession, Babbage likely would have preferred the label often assigned to men like him. Gentlemen scientists who were independently wealthy and could afford um, the kind of uh, intellectual indulgences. Computers did exist in the 1800s. A computer was just a person, one who computes, rather than a machine. So anything requiring precise mathematical calculations was always done by hand, and it was always done by people. So naturally... So anything involving complex calculations, like navigation and astronomy, involved what were called error tables that were then checked manually by two different computers to verify their accuracy. Charles Babbage and his friend John Herschel were such computers and were hired by the Astronomical Society to do just that. They, you know, as it were, one of the friends would call a number and the other would check it. And as they went through this thing, Babbage became increasingly agitated because of the numbers of errors, the number of discrepancies between the two sets of calculations, and he as it were, clasped his hand to his head and said, I wish to God these calculations had been executed by steam. The idea was, steam was but a metaphor for the infallibility of machinery, that the machines could calculate, in those words I say compute, without error. It was also a metaphor for industrial production. They could produce tables at will. So the great epiphany was you could use machinery to do calculations. The purpose of the difference engine was to produce error-free mathematical tables by removing the human from the production loop. He devoted the rest of his life to trying to realize this. Now let's be clear about the size of this engine. This machine has 8,000 mechanical parts. It weighs five tons. It's 11 foot long and 7 foot high. It's about 18 inches deep at its narrowest and about 3 or 4 feet deep at the printing section. So it's a huge machine. It looks like nothing of its era. Now the beauty of the method is that you can find the value of a class of mathematical functions called polynomials, which ordinarily would require division and multiplication. But using the method of finite differences, by repeated addition, you could eliminate the need for division and multiplication, which up to that point in time, you could only get by thinking. And this was the start of artificial intelligence. This was the start of machine intelligence. So with just one seventh of the machine actually built, Babbage gets a better idea. A general purpose computer that could be programmed in all sorts of ways that would effectively be able to think. He called it the analytical engine. The difference engine by modern standards would be called a calculator. It can only do one set of things. It's only got one algorithm. The analytical engine is a general purpose machine. It's programmable. That is to say, you can ask it to do anything you want by asking it in the right way. And it is, again, another quantum leap in conception. Conceived in 1833, 
The analytical engine embodied almost every logical principle of a modern digital computer, which, as Doran points out, can sound like a backwards projection from our own age in an attempt to dignify Babbage's work. But the detail of the design is remarkable. The logic of the machine is very close to the von Neumann architecture, which is the defining model for the modern electronic digital computer, which was described in 1945. So the separation of the store and the mill, what we'd now call memory and processor, is actually part of the, the, the Babbage's original analytical engine design. Like modern computers, it's got a serial operation. It operates serially, does one thing at a time, with a fetch-execute cycle. It fetches something, operates on it, and returns it. It's a feature of the von Neumann architecture. It has parallel processing. You can do more than one thing at a time. That's at a systems level. At a user level, it's programmable using punched cards. So the algorithm was embodied in the punched cards, and that was the program. And then it went into a design that, of this machine that was much more demanding, much more sophisticated, and vastly more significant and important. It's, it was a quantum leap in both logical conception and physical scale. Nothing, had, nothing like it preceded it. Around this time, Babbage is introduced to Ada Lovelace. Born Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, she was the daughter of legendary and controversial poet, Lord Byron. Ada Lovelace was a writer and a mathematician who described her approach as one of poetical science, believing the blend of artistic and scientific perspectives provided the most useful way to see the truth of the world. Foreshadowing. Babbage invited Lovelace, who was just 18 years old at the time, to witness the difference engine prototype in action. She was fascinated by the machine and spent considerable time with Babbage, writing and translating articles about his work to share it with the world, including one very famous set of notes attached to a translation of an article written by Italian engineer Luigi Federico Manabrea about the analytical engine, which cemented her place in the computing history books even if, as Doran Swade argues, for the wrong reasons. She's absolutely deserved of the illustrious position she has, but not for the reasons most commonly quoted. But much more on that later. Side note, you know, doesn't it seem unfair that some people get to walk around with a cool name like Luigi Federico Menabria? I'm just saying, you know, for instance, we have very little chance of ever getting someone like Barack Obama to come on this show, but... If I were Luigi Federico Hermes instead of Scott Herms, I think our chances would be a little better. Okay, anyway, so the analytical engine at least conceptually is being well received. The progress he had made on the analytical engine, the far more advanced machine, had unearthed new ways to improve his original plans for the difference engine. He left detailed drawings behind, but before he could build it, the strength of his reputation started to wane. He found himself at odds with the engineers he brought in to help build it, and soon after, the funding he relied on was gone. It was a national scandal that he'd spent massive sums of government money and didn't produce an engine, and he lost credibility. He hadn't produced enough to sustain credibility for something that was unheard of till that time. There were plenty of people who thought he was wasting his time from the very beginning that error tables and hand-operated slide rules were perfectly fine, and the idea of performing mathematical calculations by machine was alarmist, wasteful, and nothing more than a solution in search of a problem. Babbage lived and worked from his home in London until he died in 1871. 
When I started reading as a novice curator in 1985, um, uh, Babbage failed, Babbage failed. That's what you keep hearing. Babbage is famous for two things. He invented computers and he failed to build them. And then so I flipped to the end of the book each time and said, well, when precision was achievable, did the thing work? <laughs> you know, was it the case that the circumstances masked the logical or technical impossibility? And there was no answer to the question. The, the books never ended. They all stopped with Babbage's failure. That was my starting point. In 1985, Doran was, in his words, a novice curator. He had been in charge of the computing collections at the London Science Museum for all of six weeks when he gets an unexpected visit from an Australian computer historian by the name of Alan Bromley. Was Alan Bromley arriving on my doorstep? I was curator of computing at the time, with standing there. I'd never met him before, and in his hand was a was a proposal directed to De Margaret Weston to say, "I've studied difference engine number two for the last several years." I understand how it works. I'm convinced it can be built in time for the bicentenary of Babbage's birth to be celebrated in 1991. This was 1985. Amid the unanswered questions about whether the machines could have been built, what better way to find out than to actually build them? Just as Babbage designed, picking up where he left off roughly 150 years prior. So we had six years to build a machine. He said he understood how it worked, and he was convinced that it was viable. And that's where the story of the construction started. But you see, part of what we try to do was to try and vindicate him, say, well, you know, was this a man with improbable dreams? Did the circumstances surrounding the collapse of his attempts to build the machines mask the logical impossibility or the technical impossibility of it? We didn't know this thing would work. We had fair confidence in it because we thought we understood it. But there was no sealed envelope from a deity which said, this thing can be built and if you build it, it'll work. You know, this thing could have failed a thousand times over all the way through. So what we did was to try and set about and saying was, you know, was this a man with just improbable, impractical dreams? Was he deluded? You know, was he deluded about these machines? For Swade, Bromley and the rest of the team at the London Science Museum, Answering those questions would only be possible if they limited their process to the same materials and means of manufacturing that Babbage had available. The goal was six years to build it. It took 17. What we did was we consulted experts in 19th century mechanical engineering and said, what would Babbage have used if somebody had built this thing then? So we had to firstly decode them. Then we had to produce over 200 drawings, what we call them piece part drawings. That's a drawing of every single part. Each number is represented by a wheel of the same kind. So they're 248 figure wheels, wheels with numbers on them, of near identical form. And then there's a, there's a chunks of machinery, and that's in a, in a frame, in a rectangular frame. Slowly making, assembling, testing, fixing, and reassembling parts like the pieces of an 8,000 piece puzzle that may or may not reveal a clear image when finished. It worked like a charm. Dorn was kind enough to send along a clip of their completed machine. Here's the real audio of Difference Engine Number 2, the first ever completed. I still, I've, I've demonstrated that thing, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of times, and it never fails to gratify me to watch people the first time they see the double helices move at the back. 
their jaw drops, literally, jaws drop. When you see this unbelievable choreography of this mechanical dance that this machine does. What did we understand through building it that we didn't understand before? The answer is a great deal. There was levels of sophistication in this machine that we had no conception of and would only became evident when we built it. And the reason for that is authenticity was the watchword of the project. In other words, we did not think we could vindicate Babbage unless we built it in a way that he himself could have built it. What we've shown is that Babbage was not an impossible, improbable dreamer. That is, designs were viable. The machine worked exactly as intended. There were no logical modifications to doing it. There were interpretive things we had to correct in the drawings. There were layout problems, but there was nothing that had to be logically correct. The thing was logically absolutely sound and worked as intended. Doran's appreciation for the original designs of the difference engine and the analytical engines wasn't the only thing sharpened and reshaped as he immersed himself in Babbage's work. Ada Lovelace is considered to be by many the world's first computer programmer. Ada Lovelace was the world's first computer programmer. She was a British mathematician and writer who is regarded by many to be the world's first computer programmer. Lovelace is now celebrated for a number of things. One is she's said to be a mathematical genius. She's said to be a prophet of the computer age. She's said to have had an influence in the design of the analytical engine. And she's said to be the first programmer. Only one of those four is anything near true. She was a promising mathematician, but she was a relative novice. She was new to mathematics. She was precocious and bright, and who knows what might have happened had she carried on. Had a major influence on the analytical engine design. Babbage's designs for the analytical engine were finished. The, the major drawing, 1840, was finished at the point at which Lovelace became involved in the analytical engine at all. First computer programmer. I mean, I don't know where to start with this, but the answer is no. Um, ba Babbage wrote 24 programs two years before Lovelace was involved in analytical engine at all. I can show you manuscripts of programs that Babbage wrote. They are indistinguishable in structural form from the one program that Lovelace produced, which is the Bernoulli numbers in the article, which is a particular mathematical series. And it's no small achievement for somebody to have marshaled that. But she didn't invent programming. Babbage started programming seven years before Lovelace was involved in this work at all. Lovelace's position in the history of computing is based on one article she published, a very substantial article, which is the most insightful article on the analytical engine of that period. Hi, everyone. Max here. I'm a producer for the show, just popping in to make sure we can properly clarify a couple details. Scott was out on vacation when we were editing this episode, so you're stuck with me for now. The article mentioned by Dr. Swade was the piece that Ada Lovelace translated for Luigi Manabrea that we mentioned earlier. In addition to the translation, she included an elaborate set of notes, including the description of an algorithm for the analytical engine to compute a mathematical sequence known as Bernoulli numbers, which was, again, as Dr. Swade pointed out, a substantial feat in itself. But Lovelace's notes went further. She had witnessed how the newly invented jacquard looms used replaceable punch cards to represent complex patterns, allowing the machine to weave textiles into works of art with speed and ease. 
She believed the analytical engine could be applied in a similar way, weaving together programs and further abstracting exactly what the machine was calculating. The idea is a core principle of how computers work as we know them today, but until that point had never been described. Here's how Dr. Swade sums up the core of Ada Lovelace's revelation. Number can represent entity other than quantity. A number can represent a note of music. A number can represent a letter of the alphabet. Nowhere does Babbage talk in this way. For Babbage, the machines were a technology for mathematics. And that endured for his lifetime. What Lovelace saw as the potential power of computer was the ability of the computer, the ability of the machine, to manipulate representations of the world according to rules contained in symbols. The analytical engine was a 100-year leap, but it was only Ada Lovelace who truly understood where the leap might lead. Any function of modern computing that we've grown so accustomed to, Spotify playing your favorite song at the drop of a hat, FaceTiming with a family across the world, reading the Wikipedia article for Lisa Simpson's Buddhist faith and its role within the Simpsons family, they're all modern miracles that are only possible because images, sounds, and words are represented by numbers, symbols, and rules. So, prophet of the computer age? Doran says the answer is a resounding yes. This is a vastly more creditable and illustrious and distinguished accomplishment than writing the 25th program of Babbage's 24. Now, the reason of the appeal of Lovelace cannot be separated from the gender equality movement, which in itself is a highly worthy thing. The problem with the first person to envision how representations of the world could be manipulated by symbols according to rules is... That's hardly a, a soundbite. First programmer works a hell of a lot better for tabloid journalism. The problem about calling it the first programmer, and I don't believe in my lifetime we will ever shift public perception from that strapline, is that it masks something vastly more important that she did do, <laughs> which is she understood in ways that Babbage did not what the importance and significance historically of a computing engine was. Dr. Swade says it can't be overstated just how profound this idea truly was, particularly because she could see what Babbage didn't. He had tremendous respect for Lovelace, often referring to her as his interpretess. But still, she couldn't get him to budge from what he saw as the purpose of the analytical engine. Two years before he died, he sat down and wrote three separate descriptions. He attempted a complete description of the analytical engine. And he starts off by saying, the purpose of the analytical engine is, and the three attempts he made to start this document, which he never completed, were all mathematical. Babbage saw the analytical engine as the future of mathematics. Some in Europe saw it as the wasteful pipe dream of a rich lunatic. Like a spruce goose of the 1800s. Ada Lovelace saw it for what it really was the first clear vision of how computers and the internet would eventually transform the world, just a century too early to be truly understood. Doran Swade and his team were able to resolve the uncertainty around whether the difference engine could have been built in the first place. Now he's part of a group aiming to do the same thing with the analytical engine. The project is called Plan 28, named after the most complete set of drawings Babbage left behind and started by a man named John Graham Cumming. So uh, Graham Cumming, amongst other things, was instrumental in getting recognition for Alan Turing, posthumously. So I've had a lot of people calling me up and asking me about Babbage. And I got an email from somebody called John Graham Cumming, which showed a, a, an unusual 
knowledge of the sources. He said, look, I've been reading my Vedadam. These are the sources I've come across. Is there anything I'm missing? And I thought, good golly, this is pretty thorough. So I phoned him up and said, I literally, these are the words I hear. He said, who the hell are you? Because anyone in that field one would know about. You know, there are not many historians of computing around. There are very few people concentrating on Babbage. Yeah, I said, who the hell are you? Anyhow, we ended up meeting, and he said that he wanted to start an educational charity to build the analytical engine. That's how it started, and I said, right. <laughs> so well, that's established. Why is it meaningful to build it? I think that there's a, there's a sensible reason, there's a romantic reason. The sensible reason is educational value. It shows you about mechanical logic. It shows you how logic works mechanically. and shows you what is involved in a computation by seeing the machinery of it, literally and metaphorically. And for the romantic reason? People were highly skeptical. And one of Babbage's big disappointments was he didn't have the proof to envision people about what this thing could do by its appearance. And the best way I can describe what I mean by that is something that Francis Spufford, an English um, author who's written about the difference engine, wrote. You can experience what a Victorian would have experienced watching the machine. It shows you the promise of a future already past. What 100-year computing leaps are being attempted today? Well, in terms of computing technology, there's one big one. It has the potential to fundamentally upend just about everything we know about computers. It's rooted in very real principles of physics that, when in the hands of Hollywood screenwriters, provide a great shortcut to telling audiences that things just got sciency. It's the quantum tunneling effect. Quantum teleportation. Quantum torpedoes locked. Quantum asteroid field. Quantum memory. Quantum brain. Quantum realm. Quantum phone. I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. Some of those are things. Most are not. But quantum computing is absolutely a thing. The technology may not be viable yet, but research institutions, government agencies, and private companies are pouring billions of dollars of investment into building quantum computers that could transform the way the world works. Joining us to help us make sense of it all is Dr. Shohini Ghosh. Dr. Shohini Ghosh is a multi-award-winning quantum physicist and professor of physics and computer science at Wilfrid Laurier University. She was the president of the Canadian Association of Physicists and the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Physics. She is the founding director of the Laurier Center for Women in Science. Her research is in the area of quantum information science, the study of how the laws of quantum physics can be harnessed to transform computation and communication and to develop novel tasks such as teleportation. Fantastic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ghosh. It's a real pleasure to have you on here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, how can I let that go? Teleportation. When you were when you were growing up, did you ever think, you know, what I'm going to be doing in the future is working on technology that will allow teleportation? Well, actually, I did dream about it because one of my favorite <laughs> shows was Star Trek. Of course. And that's all about, you know, beaming on and off planets. And uh, that's what I would dream of doing. Just you know, travel everywhere I wanted to. But now, the teleportation that I work on, unfortunately, is not that as yet. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. You're right. So I'm I'm as surprised as you are <laughs> that I get to actually write papers about teleportation. 
Awesome. Well, well just tell, tell us a little bit more. I mean, we know where you're at now. Just tell us a little bit more about your background and how you did get interested in specifically into quantum information science, which is, I think, is a very individualized area inside of the broader quantum physics and inside of the broader quantum computation, if I'm correct. Yes. Um, now it's kind of everywhere you look, people know, you know, these buzzwords, quantum computing and sure. know, quantum encryption and things like this. But yeah. back when I was a grad student, it was not even really an, a topic. It was just starting oh. out. Um, well, the actual field itself is, I'd say it started roughly around the 80s, but it took a while to grow. And what happened in the 80s was that there was this um, interesting new idea to try to use some of the laws of quantum physics to do better kinds of encryption protocols. And that, mm. of course, everybody got excited about because, as we know, data yeah. security is so important today. And that eventually grew into what we call quantum information processing, which is essentially using mm. quantum ideas to try to do any kind of information processing or computing or communication. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky because I, that was when I was just starting out thinking about going to grad school for physics. And I'd done an, um, a research project in the summer, you know, one of these summer internships. Mm -hmm. uh, and my professor happened to assign me something which was uh, on quantum physics, but as you, as you correctly pointed out, this is a much broader field. This is generally you know, looking into how atoms and electrons behave. So I did that project and I kind of liked it. So then he's the one who suggested to me, my supervisor suggested to me that I should look into this new area called quantum information science. And there was just this one research group back then that actually <laughs> was even a place where you could do this. And that's where I ended up going. And I got lucky to be in right from the start. Awesome, that is great. Um, and so, Maybe it's it's definitely going to help people because we I, I think you hit on it. There's a lot of buzzwords out there and people kind of throw it around and, you know, make jokes about, um, you know, the uncertainty principle without really understanding it. I, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, and so maybe it's um, let's just maybe just some baseline sort of when we talk about, you know, quantum computing, you know, what exactly does that mean and how is it different than, you know, traditional computing that people may or may not be familiar with? It's an interesting question because quantum computing is fundamentally very different from the computing that we are used to every day. We all know how to use laptops and you know, even our phones are basically computers. Even our TVs have processors. So everything is calculating something. And the reason they yeah. are all uh, basically similar is because underneath all of the hardware, what's happening is very similar. And what's going on is that there's essentially a combination of zeros and ones which encode all data. And then every calculation, whether it's email or some fancy calculation done by NASA, in the end, all of that can be represented as combinations of zeros and ones and manipulating them with some set of instructions. That's what computing is, which is really kind of amazing yeah. that everything yeah, yeah. is just reduced to that. Yeah. And it is universal because we can do the email and we can also try to, you know, build a rocket ship to go to the moon. But what's different about quantum computing is that we have to actually shift the entire framework of, you know, calculating itself. Instead of thinking about mm -hmm. just, you know, combining zeros and ones, which is a very binary approach, turns out that there's a much more expanded way of thinking about how to do calculations. You don't have to limit yourself just to two values, zero and one. Quantum computing allows a way to think of what we call quantum bits, which 
you know, regular bits are the zeros and ones, but quantum bits can actually have some probability of being a zero and a probability of being a one, but they don't have to be one or the other. Right. And that sounds weird because yeah. it means that it's, we don't know and that's where uncertainty comes into the picture. But not knowing is actually not as bad of a, <laughs> a problem. In fact, it's the opposite. I often call it a superpower, you know, the secret knob. Yeah, it's a feature. It's a feature of quantum it computing is. is the ability to set. And I think that's a great way to think about it. It's like a little knob that you can spin. What's the probability between zero and one for this bit? And then it, it opens up a whole world of possibilities. Literally. Yeah. And another way to visualize it is to think of, let's say, zero and one as, let's say, north and south pole on some planet where you're trying to compute. Yeah. But if you're allowed to have some combination, what we call a superposition of zero and one, which essentially is like saying, well, it's kind of at the north pole, but we don't know for sure. <laughs> or we're kind of at the south pole, but we don't know. We don't care. We can explore the entire surface of the planet. Yeah. That's a much bigger space for doing computing. And that's what it means to have that powerful knob, which is why all of our computing framework now shifts away from just the North Pole and the South Pole. We explore this entire landscape and try to build better, uh, better ways to do the tasks. The tasks are still the same. We yeah. still want to build that rocket ship to the moon and we still want to find new uh, drugs and, and vaccines, for example but we just want to do it in ways that are more efficient, for example, right. or secure. And, and so the quantum principle that allows us to do this, it, it, maybe that's helpful to explain, because that is probably like one of the most confusing things. And, and is this, and I think it's also, isn't the one where Einstein said that like God doesn't play dice with the universe, right? That this sort of idea that there's this probabilistic universe as opposed to a binary universe is kind of disturbing to people at some deep level. So maybe that would be helpful to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. This idea of not knowing is, <laughs> is very, very disturbing, I think. We like to yeah. you know, know everything, I guess. But in fact, uh, there are several aspects of quantum theory that um, are not necessarily intuitive and not something we experience. So this idea of not exactly zero or one, it's kind of like having a coin with heads and tails, but we don't know for sure whether there's actually a heads or actually, well, whether the coin even exists at all. Right. Or maybe both sides are heads and tails at the same time. So these kinds of counterintuitive ways of thinking are very alien to us, which is really where what we mean by this quantum probabilistic world. However, with atoms and photons and electrons, that's exactly how they behave. Their world is this fluid world where they don't have a very fixed identity. Things are not as precise as we would like. And not only is it that each of them individually are, you know, living this very interesting non-binary probabilistic life, when they interact with each other, they can actually, you know, get connected in this way that we call entanglement. Yeah. And that also is a powerful knob yeah. because they, it's this balancing act between uncertainty that each of these individual particles are not really fixed in all aspects of their identity, that all the properties are not knowable. However, they can connect to each other in ways where, you know, in the language of computing, if one of them is kind of at the North Pole, meaning a zero, then the other one will definitely also be at the North Pole. Yeah. That's the connection. So that's perfect certainty in their correlation, but perfect uncertainty in whether they are the North Pole at all in the first place. <laughs> Maybe they're the South Pole. It, we don't know, but they're both at the same place. It, and is that is that 
is that mechanism understood or is it just an observed property of um, particles that they once they're entangled, their states are always in sync, even if we don't know what the, the state is until we go to observe it. Is that because that one kind of freaks me out, honestly, is that that's like the weirdest thing because it's not doesn't and it's not affected by distance either. Right. In principle. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question as in can we derive? In fact, it is derivable from the underlying mm. Uh, sort of rules of quantum theory itself. And that's exactly what Einstein and his colleagues, Podolsky and Rosen, they're the ones who first wrote this paper back in 1935, where they described this idea of entanglement, which came up, came about from just applying the laws of quantum theory mm -hmm. that was um, at the time, you know, already developed. And it was such a strange idea that, you know, Einstein famously didn't really believe that quantum theory was even correct. <laughs> and, you know, he made all these comments yeah. about God playing dice and all of that. So he was always a skeptic because everything was so strange. However, the math is clear. It's not that he was um, somehow not, um, you know, trying to say that the math is not correct. It's correct given that those are the laws of quantum theory. Mm. His conclusion was maybe quantum theory itself needs to be expanded in uh, some way. Okay. Uh, from his uh, paper until today, we have not, for not found any way to actually expand it and get rid of this strange thing called entanglement. So in that sense, it comes out of the theory and it's also been uh, verified in the lab yeah. over and over and over again over the years. So it's it seems to be correct. <laughs> All of our observations seem to prove it. So we're kind of stuck with it at this point. <laughs> it's disturbing. <laughs> Unless somebody very smart can actually fix up quantum theory the way Einstein had imagined. <laughs> Great. And so, okay, so we have um, these probabilistic bits and we also have the ability um, if these particles that are in some of these probabilistic bits are entangled, we could have sort of shared state across a distance, right? And so we're gonna come back to these later, but I just wanna set that sort of baseline. And what's also, I think, really interesting to me is the ordeal that you have to go through to create uh, the, the quantum bit or qubit compared to an ordinary silicon bit that we're all very familiar with, right? Like so, and I know there's a couple different ways of doing it because this, this field is in its infancy and I've heard it described as it's a, a the physicist's dream and an engineer's nightmare because the the need to isolate the quantum world from the analog world um, is is uh, and maybe that's I'm saying it wrong, but the analog state of the the machines that need to talk to the quantum computer are living in a binary world and they need to interact with a machine that's built to reflect a probabilistic world and that and that keeping those two worlds isolated, but yet having some kind of communication between them is sort of the major ordeal that we're undergoing right now. Is that is that close to what's going on? That's a great explanation, Scott. That's uh, very much part of, um, of the challenge of making this dream into a reality. And I'm kind of lucky because I'm on the physics, physics oh. side. So for me, it is a dream <laughs> yeah. and it's exciting, yeah. but I wouldn't want to be in the lab trying to build this stuff. You're right. It's very, very challenging. There's a quote from TED Talk that's saying, if you're confused by quantum, don't worry, you're getting it. Is that even true for your students? Is that like how, is there always just some level of confusion? Yeah, I like to think about it as being very clear about exactly why it's confused. Then that's <laughs> when you're really getting to an understanding. So if you're confused and you don't know why you're confused mm -hmm. about quantum, then you're just confused. <laughs> but if you realize that deep, deep 
completely buried into the laws of the universe itself are questions about the nature of reality, mm. you know, about cause and effect, this whole thing about entanglement. And the idea that the universe is not fixed, there's this weird fuzziness to it. Yeah. Those are deep questions that, of course, we can't really grasp because we don't experience that level of, um, you know, probabilistic lifestyle. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to know that that's why it is weird, yeah. that's when mm -hmm. real understanding happens. Then you're really, you know, engaging with the foundational, fundamental mystery of quantum. Yeah. And digging deep into it. So understanding what the difference is doesn't mean you understand the difference itself, but you understand what the difference is, which yeah. is better than nothing, I guess. So I hope my students get there. Great. Um, all right. So I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, what what is the what parts of the quantum theory that we're interested in for quantum computing specifically and hopefully it's very high level and everyone is is with us about you know and then that there's these processors that are designed to take advantage of that so it's like okay great um, but i think like the real key thing the really exciting thing about it is now like what's the what is quantum computing specifically good at um that's going to make us go leaps and bounds ahead of what our current digital or analog computing um, is good at so current quantum computers are actually not good at anything because of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I yes. should have been clear. The theoretical, though, like, you know, when we get to 10,000 qubits or, you know, instead of 20 exactly. or 200. So right? you've already <laughs> laid out the, the huge engineering challenges of making that happen. But of course, in the early days of regular computers back in the 60s, you know, th those those machines were also really challenging. What we take for granted today is yeah. amazing how how things have changed. So I feel like we're in that kind of a process now with quantum computers as well, where the current computers are sort of these very basic prototypes and who knows where we will go with the, with the technology later. If we do, then yes, there are many, many possible exciting applications. Um, one that I think is uh, further along in, in terms of the technology being rolled out is this area of uh, data security and communication and encryption. Mm. So you and I will probably not see this when we you know, do our emails or send our WhatsApp messages, but on the back end, there's always some kind of data encryption happening, I hope. <laughs> and there's always somebody right. trying to hack <laughs> our uh, data. But right. the idea is that quantum would give us an, uh, a way to build encryption in ways that use this, uh, these ideas of uncertainty and so on in such a way that the encryption is based on the laws of physics and not on some computing power. So no matter how powerful your computer yeah. is, if you are trying to hack my data, it won't work because you have to actually break, break the laws of quantum physics. <laughs> so that <laughs> is something that's being developed and obviously you know both governments and companies around the world and researchers are very excited about the potential but you know there's good and bad of course to that kind of an application because right. um, you know who controls right. that level of data and security and so on so there is a big conversation that needs to happen but this is a technology that is slowly being rolled out more and more um, and um, you know who knows where, where we're going to go with it? Maybe in the future, all of the backend encryption will be quantum. I, so I, I guess there's, there's two thoughts that I have on that is that I've heard about. One is, uh, again, like you say, it's a technology. It can be used for good or bad. So on one hand, because our the strength of our current encryption 
is based on that. It, it's uh, supposed to be resistant to what's called a brute force attack, you know, which is sort of a traditional sort of digital thing. It's like, I'm going to run all these permutations over, you know, 256 bits, but it's going to take me 37 years to run all the permutations. So, but because of quantum mechanics, probabilistic style of computing, it will not take, uh, it will be able to, once we get to more more processors, it's conceivable that a quantum computer can more quickly break a uh, uh, our, our current encryption. Is that is that true or has that been misrepresented? Actually, the current encryption that is most vulnerable to quantum computing is what we call RSA, which is this mm-hmm. um, algorithm which is based on a particular mathematical uh, approach and underlying the encryption, actually the problem, the math math problem that is keeping all our data secret is factoring of large numbers. <laughs> Turns out that's a very right, hard right. problem. So if uh, you try, if you ask your regular computer to try to factor, let's say the number twenty one, that's easy. We don't even need a computer. Hopefully, <laughs> it's uh, you know easy enough to do in our heads. But if I ask you to factor right. the number five million seven hundred and thirty seven. That's a little bit harder, but a computer could do it. But now if you go to a number which is, let's say, 200 digits long, turns out supercomputers are not even able to crack that. However, computers can keep getting more and more powerful, and so you'd have to keep making the numbers bigger and bigger. Even that would not be enough if you have a quantum computer, because a quantum computer could crack that um, factoring problem specifically. There's an algorithm known Mm. that would be able to crack it in minutes. So that's wow. why RSA is particularly vulnerable. There are other kinds of algorithms that are that we uh, or other encryption techniques where we don't necessarily have a quantum algorithm yet to uh, crack it. And in that case, yes, you could do a brute force search, which is also more efficient on a quantum computer, but not as bad as let's say the RSA vulnerability. Wow, I didn't know. Uh, that's really interesting. That it's just the key algorithm for generating. Uh, for cracking it. I did not understand that. So definitely encryption is exciting. Any other areas um, that is the, the, the theoretical quantum computer is well suited for that are interesting to you or that you think are you know exciting to talk about? Yeah. Um, another area that's, I think, uh, what certainly researchers are very focused on is this, what's called quantum simulation. And there, the idea is that, let's say you want to try to figure out all the properties of some kind of a molecule. Maybe you're trying to build a better uh, type of solar cell, or maybe you're trying to develop new drugs and pharmaceuticals. All of that, in the end, is about uh, what we call quantum chemistry, meaning understanding all of the individual properties and connections of all the atoms inside a molecule. Uh, that turns out, again, to be a, quite a difficult problem for our regular computers, even supercomputers, because calculating every single quantum property, because keep in mind, these are uh, quantum particles, electrons and atoms. You have to be able to uh, describe them using the laws of quantum theory, which, as we now have discussed, are based on this probabilistic framework. Trying to code all that on a regular computer, which is not itself a quantum computer, turns out to be not the right match. It's like using the wrong box of tools for the job. But a quantum computer has exactly the right tools. Therefore, if if we could find a way to build a quantum computer to do these kinds of simulations, then that would be very, very exciting. And in fact, you don't necessarily need a very large scale quantum computer. Even a small scale mm. 
a computer could perhaps be able to do some of the hardest parts of these calculations for some, you know, mid-sized molecules. And then maybe we could use a uh, hybrid approach and, you know, use what we learned from the quantum computer and plug it into the, our regular supercomputers and then speed up the whole process. So that's a very exciting area, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And we can't let teleportation go either. So how are, how are we teleporting? How, how am I being teleported to work uh, without, uh, or more exciting, Fiji? Uh, you know, with the with the quantum computer. Unfortunately, I wouldn't <laughs> hold my breath for <laughs> us to solve our transportation problems. What we do is we teleport quantum bits. So information can certainly be teleported and it's already been uh, done in the labs and across certain distances and so on. So this would be a kind of technology that could be plugged into, let's say, some kind of a future quantum-based internet where you could... Mm. Uh, you know, develop these protocols for all the different types of communications we do on the internet, but we could do more by uh, transmitting data in different ways and therefore build protocols that perhaps we don't have today, such as, um, you know, maybe we could do some kind of a quantum wow. voting protocol where, which, you know, <laughs> yes, eh? maybe we could vote from home and it would still be secure <laughs> because <laughs> through entanglement, we could maybe teleport our votes and things like this. Yeah. So th those are the kinds of applications. I don't think we're going to be teleporting humans anytime soon. Uh, oh, well. So, but I, I, I have heard quantum internet before, and I think uh, there's a consortium that's centered out, of, I, I, probably a variety of places, but I just know about it because it's here. And uh, University of Chicago, I think, is involved in Argonne and uh, Fermilab, uh, the big scientific research areas here in the Midwest. Um, so what exactly is the quantum internet then? Is it, is it just we described as it's basically we're using entanglement to move things instead of sending them over fiber optics, or is it more than that? That's part of it, and I, it doesn't mean you don't use fiber optics. So there's the theoretical idea of, uh, you know, these quantum particles that are maybe connected and interacting in ways that currently we are not utilizing in our fiber optics networks or in our Wi-Fi. But keep in mind that uh, in the quantum internet would still be uh, one in which the particles, the fundamental particles that would be carrying the information, will still be photons, meaning, you know, light you know, particles of light. And that's sure. actually exactly what fiber optics carries even now, yeah. anyway. So it's not that the, that fundamental physical system is going to be different. It's just that, as I said, we're just expanding the ways we control that physical system and what we can do with it. And so you and I will probably not see much of a difference. Maybe we'll have, um, you know, some kind of... Uh, uh, and uh, some additional apps that we might see on our phones where we can do things that we couldn't do before, such as, let's say, here, start your quantum voting app or something like this. Right, right. But on, on our side, it wouldn't look different. Mm. The quantum Internet would be something that perhaps would sit as a layer on top of our regular Internet. And there'd be um, maybe a satellite network which could generate these entangled particles and transmit them to different receiving stations and be used for different types of applications. Um, uh, yeah, so okay. I think that's more of what might happen. And for example, China has already launched a satellite to try to you know, test this kind of a system and this approach. Wow. So yeah, it's not... Uh, not really sci-fi anymore. <laughs> um, we might have small-scale networks. As you correctly pointed out, there's already these kinds of networks that are being tested and benchmarked for the future. Now, um, 
the, I think on the user side, we're not necessarily going to see much of a change. But I think it's, it's the same as, you know, when we built the regular internet. It's not right. that you and me actually saw the fiber optic cables that currently are all around the world being laid. But we certainly saw the impact of how it changed. So it's very hard to predict exactly what will be the impact of this technology. Um, but certainly there will be something. Already there are small changes. For example, um, you know, not, not in quantum computing itself, but the area of quantum sensing uh, is an area that's growing. Um, encryption, as I said, you know, small, scale, small scale networks are already built. Um, and then, yeah, for you know, getting to a problem that current computers have never solved before, I think that'll take maybe five to 10 years. A problem, not the problem, right, right. but some problem that is an important one and not just some toy, toy problem. Because of course, IBM and Google have already claimed that they have yeah. solved a problem that yeah. nobody has solved before, which is true, but it's not that useful or interesting of a problem. Right. So <laughs> I think going forward, we need something that's an actual significant uh, problem to solve. And I think that will happen a small scale, not a huge problem, but a small scale problem that demonstrates significant advantage will happen in the next five to 10 years from wow. what I can tell. <laughs> I may sure. be completely wrong because nobody should ever try to predict the future of technology. No, but that's, there you have it. Yeah, yeah. that's what, if you want to, if you want to look stupid, predict, you know, the future of technology because someone will pull your quote up later and say that. Oh. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I have officially, <laughs> I have, I have, you know, thrown my hat in and I'm going to look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, good on you. Um, so a couple one, a couple things that I want to wrap up on is one, just talk about um, women in physics. You know, I know that's always a struggle in generally in STEM, you know, to a attract, you know, broader representation, right? To make sure it's a diverse and an equitable environment. Um, and then I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the Lori Laurier, sorry, Laurier Center for Women in Science. Uh, you say our ultimate goal is to make the center redundant, which is fantastic. Uh, and so how, how is that going? And, and, um, what, and what's it going to take to get there so you can, can shutter the doors on the institution? Well, it's a long, slow process, and it uh, started long before we set up our center, and it probably will go for a while. So unfortunately, we can't you know, quit anytime soon. <laughs> Um, I can tell you that the numbers in physics are some of the lowest in terms yeah. of uh, women's participation and also there are other underrepresented minorities. Um, and honestly, just the other day, as a, when I was looking at what's currently happening in industry and quantum and looking at some of these companies, you know, you click on the, for example, the boards or yeah. the, you know, the, the founding members and it's unfortunately still nothing is changing, right? Yeah. It's just a lot of men, uh, mostly white men in, in positions of leadership. So the problem is that we keep repeating the same mistakes, meaning we, we keep thinking that somehow it's not a problem for physics to solve. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it's true, physicists are not experts, which is why we have a problem. Right. So what we do at our center, for example, is to reach out to sociologists and psychologists and education specialists mm. and people who are, you know, able to develop policies and actually look at systemic changes. 
because this is not a one-shot thing and this right. is not a, for the women or the minorities to have to fix. Yeah. That's like saying, well, if, if, you know, if you get run over by a car, it's your job <laughs> to go build a better car <laughs> or fix the roads. Yeah, yeah. And that's unfortunately the approach that has been taken, as yeah. in the women have to somehow be trained better or <laughs> mentored more <laughs> or, you know, they have to f achieve some kind of magical work-life balance. So yeah. there are all these yeah. fix-the-women approaches. Yeah. And instead, I think we need to back up and really understand why is it that this environment is not inclusive to everyone. And there are many known uh, sort of um, studies which uh, identify all of the issues, which are not surprising, right? The, you know, the fact is we have particular roles for men and for women, and we right. are kind of stuck with them, and we're kind of old-fashioned, and we don't like to change. But the good news is that this is all, you know, we made this stuff up. It's right. not written into our genes. Yeah. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be using all of the talent, all the people who are interested and excited by this area, there's no reason that we shouldn't be inviting them all in because imagine then we maybe we could build that large scale quantum computer much much faster. Yeah. So absolutely. that itself should be the incentive and I hope we get there. That's great. I'm glad to hear that and you know I'm I'm of an age where I can still remember people were still saying that oh it's a oh it's just a genetic thing like women don't enjoy this work. <laughs> you know and it's like oh, thank god we're beyond that at least you know thank god that um, you know at least it's like we recognize that it's not like you said, it's like the, the people who are being oppressed by the system are not and should not be in charge of trying to fix the system, right? It's the people who are pulling the levers that are stopping the other people from coming in. That's yeah, and last I checked, you know, I don't think we, we need to use our breasts or any other woman's body parts <laughs> to do physics. So there's no reason to believe that. Yeah, no, no. It's, yeah. Thankfully, all those are gone. Um, and so I guess if you don't mind, like, I mean, obviously you've gone through, you've lived this, right? So, I mean, what were what were some of the struggles that you had and, you know, how does, you know, how, how did you overcome them? I mean, it must it, it's yes yeah, so if you could explain that maybe that'll help people sort of understand the difficulties that it is working inside the system well it it was a lonely road for one thing there were not a lot of women in my classes in physics and um, back when I uh, was thinking about what I wanted to do um, it you know it wasn't it didn't feel like a natural fit in the sense that you know there were lots of other women who were choosing it and I didn't know of any other role models in the field other than you know Marie Curie but other than that you, you open any textbook mm -hmm. today in physics and you you probably will not see a single woman mentioned right. although there are many 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 men of course mentioned yeah. Yeah. so in that sense it's a it's a very what we call a chilly climate meaning mm. there's really no space where you see yourself belonging yeah and for me luckily i I always looked for a reason to continue because I loved physics so much. And that's what kept me going. And I thought, hey, you know, if I just prove that I can do the physics and be really good at it, you know, things will work out. But that was me being naive, I think, when I started because unfortunately there are other, other things at play. And, um, you know, there was the usual, I don't think I'm, um, I'm special in any way. I felt the usual kinds of biases, you know, of not having much support for my research mm -hmm. or, you know, certainly in classrooms, I was not the, you know, the, not really seen as in, you know, 
the other students perhaps would not want to necessarily work with me or assume wow. that I knew anything. Wow. I mean, small things that add up, right? Yeah. Uh, I've been in conferences where I've been asked to fetch the coffee, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I've, I've been mistaken for the admin person and uh. asked to fix the photocopier. I mean, all of the oh stereotypical, I mean, it seems like some bad movie, right? Yeah. But it really, really does happen. Uh, all sorry. the way to even extremes where, you know, I've been in situations where I've been as a professor in a classroom threatened with rape and murder and had to have security oh escort me God. around. So uh, it, it's, it's the whole spectrum, right? Wow. You get it, you face it all. And at some point I had to say enough. I can't keep ignoring it and thinking that physics is enough for me to somehow survive. Survival should never be the goal. Right. Yeah. So I, I, and I went and I looked for help, meaning I talked to colleagues, I talked to these experts and in um, you know uh, psychology and people who understood about gender studies and gender issues and really started digging into it and that's where this whole center for uh, for women in science came from where i felt like this is something that is so common that even people like me who don't want to deal with it have to at some point face it and it shouldn't be as i said us fixing the system the system itself needs to change yeah so that's what i hope I can contribute to now as in helping to fix the system. That's, that's great. Um, well, I, I'm so sorry that those things happened to you and I'm, I'm really, I'm, uh, but I, I love your, you know, your attitude about it and that you're, you know, working for a center for hopefully it'll be better for others, you know, um, and at least they'll have some resources to help them or help the people who are running these systems make it more hospitable for everybody and welcoming and like, an, yeah, like I said, surviving is not enough, right? That is, that is not acceptable as a, as a minimum, right? That cannot be it, right? It's thriving, right? Like, and that, that's, that's great. I love that. Absolutely. I, I, we're unfortunately, and it's my fault, we're running out of time. Um, and, and I, can you go a couple minutes later or is that you have a hard stop? Um, I, I do have another meeting, so I'll have to. Okay, no problem. Um, great. Uh, so any, any last thoughts you want to leave us with uh, about uh, quantum computing, uh, about you know, what's the next big thing or, or anything that you're working on that you want to share with us? Um, yeah, I'll just say that it's uh, actually a very exciting time. It's not often that you get to see a new area that is growing and we don't know where it's going to lead us. But you know, quantum physics is not really as scary and intimidating as a lot of people think it is, especially quantum computing. You don't need to get a PhD to actually contribute to this field. So if it's something that's yeah. exciting to you and engages you, I would say that, you know, take a look at what's happening now and try to find a way where you could contribute. Think of it like, you know, the app store where anybody could build new apps back in the day when this was all growing. You still can, right? Yeah. I feel like maybe yeah. you might want to imagine yourself being part of the new quantum app store and yeah. seeing where it'll lead us. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Shahini Ghosh. It has been fantastic talking to you. I love quantum computing. It was really exciting to learn more about it and really exciting to hear about the work you're doing and also the work you're doing inside of the field to make it more diverse and equitable. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott. That's a wrap for now. Huge thank you again to Dr. Doran Swade and Dr. Shohini Ghosh. This episode was produced and written by Max Parcell. Editing by Max Parcell and Chris Mitchell. Sound engineering by Chris Mitchell. Original music by Ethan Parcell and Lucas Parcell. Light Quippery by me, your host, Scott Herms. 
spooky entanglement provided by the laws of physics. If you have feedback for us about this episode or the show in general, let us know. You can get in touch on our website or find us on Instagram or Twitter. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Visit lookbothways.kinancarta.com to listen to all available episodes or to leave feedback. Or, if you prefer, form your message using a small quantity of spin-zero particles, create a quantum tunnel to send them faster than the speed of light backwards in time, so we can include your idea in this episode before we release it. And a special thanks to podcast listener Dr. Rich Kruger for suggesting quantum tunneling as a preferred medium of communication. Until next time... <laughs>